Who's the bride? You know, I've, I have asked that question hundreds and hundreds of times over the last 25 years or so. And let me tell you why. Um, we, uh, when, when we were at the, the church before we came to Gateway, before we started Gateway, First Baptist Church in Garland, I worked with single adults, young married couples, and one of the ministries we started while we were there was a class for couples getting married. It was kind of a mix between the two ministries, and so couples that got engaged, we offered something they could go through, or if they were newly married, they could go through, and found out from a friend of mine who did something similar to another church that they had a booth that they set up out at the Dallas Bridal Show. Now, I'm just curious, anybody ever been to the Dallas Bridal Show? Let's see, see you're like, some of you have, you're like, yeah, maybe, uh, or you don't want to admit it. That's okay if you don't want to admit it, too, that's, we're good with that. Uh, but it's a massive show, and uh, we would go out there and promote this class for couples that were engaged. And uh, out of that came an opportunity. Somebody came by. Everybody's collecting information there, you know, to try to follow up with and invite people and things like that. So the way it works is pretty much everybody has a giveaway. And you fill out a little information, name, address, all the phone number, all the basic stuff. And some guy comes by our booth. He said, I am so tired of writing all this information at every booth. Somebody ought to come out here with a laptop and a printer and sell little peel and stick labels. I just thought, hmm. That's not a bad idea. I thought it was such a good idea that I stole it. Went to the show personnel and said, hey, what if we tried this? And so we started a little side business called Fast Labels that for over two decades, uh, we were out at the Dallas Bridal Show. So if you've ever been out there and you saw people selling labels, that was us. Um, and whenever people would come in and we'd explain what was going on, we would always ask this question, who's the bride? Because we wanted to know right? Who we're talking to, who's the bride. And this is what was interesting in that context. They had little pins, a little, uh, or uh, uh, little buttons rather, that said, who's the bride? And they would wear these little buttons and they were so proud to identify themselves, right? Like, I'm the bride. I'm the one who receives the special honor today. And they were proud to acknowledge that they were the bride. And most people are, are thrilled when they meet a new bride or a bride-to-be. But you know the same thing is not always the case when it comes to the bride of Christ. The Bible talks about how we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. Sometimes we're not so proud to admit it. And sometimes in our society, the bride of Christ is not looked on with so much favor. In fact, in a lot of people's minds, the church has become maybe obsolete, irrelevant, if not downright evil in the minds of some. And, you know, when we look at the skepticism that is out there, some of it is understandable uh, because of you know, things that you see in the news. You know, whether it be uh, preachers buying personal jets or uh, those in, in significant spiritual positions of authority having moral failures or just recently in the news it seems like story after story of children or women being abused by pastors and others in spiritual leadership. And it's heartbreaking to hear those kinds of things. And it's understandable why somebody, if they look at it and that's all they see is what they hear on the news or the negative things that come out. It is completely understandable why somebody would look at the church and say, I wouldn't have anything at all to do with that. But today I just want to remind you that the church is still the bride of Christ. And I think it's important to say this, where we have failed, where we have sinned, we need to acknowledge it. Rather than trying to hide it, you know, or, or gloss over it or pretend like it's not there, we need to own it and say, 
this is where we have done wrong. And we, we acknowledge that. We repent of that. Um, at the same time, we need to remember that the church is still the bride of Christ. The church matters, and it is still the, the primary way that God communicates and builds His kingdom here on earth is through His church. And so today we're going to begin a study called Who's the Bride, where we talk about uh, the church. And today's uh, topic is, is who we are. Who are we as the bride of Christ? Next couple of weeks we'll get into talking about what we want and then what we do. And then we'll end the first Sunday in May uh, with a little panel discussion where we're going to have the elders uh, come up on stage and share from their perspective of, you know, what does it mean that the church is the body of Christ and how all the members work together. And I'm looking forward to that as well. But today we are starting in the book of Acts because that's where the church starts. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And before we start reading in verse 42, just let's back up just a little bit. To earlier in this chapter when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and Jesus had told his followers to gather and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit and that they would receive power to be his witnesses and so they do that and the Spirit comes and fills them with power and they begin to communicate, they begin to speak in languages they don't understand, they begin to communicate the gospel message in languages that people from all over the world are able to hear and understand and they respond to the gospel, and, uh, and, and out of that, uh, verse 41 says uh, that those who accepted his message were baptized, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, I mean, this is just an incredible time, the beginning of the church, and I think about what excitement and celebration there would have been uh, when we had an opportunity to see, if you weren't in, especially those of you that came at 8 o'clock last Sunday for Easter Sunday, which I appreciate so much, we're not able to witness some of the baptisms, so we, we showed some pictures of that. I mean, it was exciting to have a day where 13 people were baptized at once, where about 10 people made decisions to accept Christ, and we celebrate that. That is a wonderful thing. Can you imagine 3,000 uh, all at once doing that. So that's the beginning and the birth of the church. Now let's, let's read and see what happens next after all these people come to faith in Christ. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In this passage, I see three things that identify who we are as the bride of Christ or as the church. And the first one is this, that we're Bible-focused. Now, in this context, in this this passage, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. The apostles' teachings were the teachings of Christ. Of course, this hasn't been you know, formalized yet. It hasn't been recorded in the form that we now have in the Gospels and then the, the, the rest of the letters of the New Testament that were added to that later. But when it says the apostles' teachings is what they devoted themselves to, the equivalent to us is, is Scripture. It was their, what would become our Gospels and, and eventually New Testament. And that is what they were devoted to. And I have to say that one of the primary hallmarks of the church must be that we are Bible-centered. That has to be something that defines who we are. Uh, everything that we do from 
children to students to adults and small groups to worship gatherings when we come together in settings like this as the church we must be bible focused that has to be the core of of what we're doing and you know it it pains me to say this and I I don't say this to be critical but simply to, to help us understand it's becoming less and less common for churches to be bible focused and that that sounds kind of crazy because we might think, what else would we do? But there are a lot of other things and a lot of other distractions that can make their way into the church. And uh, there are a lot of other voices out there. And one of the things we have to come to grips with and just realize is that as we are staying true to what God says, a lot of what God says is not real popular in our culture today. And it can be offensive to some. And I want to be really clear in, in the fact that our goal should never be to be offensive. Right? It's not to, to pick a fight. It's not to stir up trouble. That's not what we do as those who are Bible-focused. However, if we must choose between offending people by saying what God says or offending God by saying what people say, there's really no choice there. We must stay true to what God says. We, we are people of the word and the early church remained focused on they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings now over time distractions begin to to work their way in and over time they started to shift the focus from just the the teachings about Christ and what we would call our New Testament to focusing on tradition and passing on certain rituals and things like that and and the church began to slip away a bit from its focus on Scripture. And as you get into what we now call the Middle Ages, which is sometimes called the Dark Ages because of the lack of true light that was shining from the church and, and devotion to Scripture and those kinds of things, there were a lot of other influences that came in. For example, that the barbarians from Northern and Central Europe began to take control, and so during this dark ages, there, it, was a, it was a spiritually dark time. Uh, from the 5th to the 15th century, it was dominated by the Holy Roman Empire. But even during this period, there were those that remained true to scriptural teaching, and, and in many cases it cost them a great deal. One of the first examples of that uh, was when the, the, the church came out officially in favor of infant baptism. And there were churches that said, no, Uh, from what we see in Scripture, baptism is to be an expression of one's faith in Christ. It is a way to publicly acknowledge the fact that I have made a decision to trust in Christ. It's not what saves you, but it is a public expression of your faith in Jesus. And so there were churches that said, we're not going to go along with that. Uh, Originally, they were known as Petrobusians, hard to say. Eventually, they became known as Anabaptists. That word Anabaptist literally means rebaptizer. And the Anabaptists were those that said, no, we insist on believers' baptism. Even a person that was baptized as an infant, once they come to faith in Christ, they need to be rebaptized because it's believers' baptism that we believe uh, Scripture teaches. And that caused a lot of problems for those that didn't go along with it, but they were seeking to remain true to what Scripture taught. There were many others, and I'll name just a few of them. We don't have time to go into to all of them. Uh, one in particular was a man uh, by the name of John Huss. He was born in 1369. He was a Roman Catholic priest from Bohemia. 
he began to study Scripture, and he came to the conclusion that a lot of what he was reading in his Bible did not match up with what he was being taught and the way the church was operating and some of the, the uh, traditions and other things like that. And so he began to speak out about that. And he talked about the corruption within the church. He was ordered to appear before the Council of Constance in Germany. When he arrived, he was arrested and burned at the stake. What was his crime? His crime was that, that he said, I think we should follow what Scripture says, not what uh, church tradition teaches. Another person similar to him was born 40 years before John Huss. His name is John Wycliffe. And maybe you, you know that name. They're still the Wycliffe Bible translators to this day. Uh, Wycliffe celeb- uh, uh, sought to, to place Scripture at the, the, the center not only of the church, but also individual lives as well. So late 1300s, Wycliffe uh, was at Oxford and was their leading theologian and philosopher and uh, just was captivated by the power of God's Word. And his love for the Word of God led him into Bible translation. And they still are doing that. Wycliffe translators are still doing that today, these hundreds of years later. But he had the audacity to believe that the Bible should be translated into common language so that ordinary people could understand it. And one of his major projects was to translate the Bible into English. At that time, it was only in Latin because that's the, the uh, uh, form that the, the church used. And as you might imagine, only those who were highly educated could understand. And it was a way to control and to um, you know, keep people from really knowing uh, what, what God had to say directly. They had to depend on those who were educated to teach them. Uh, well, he had a passion for that and uh, did not live long enough to see his project completed. But that project was completed. The Bible was translated into English so that commoners could understand it. Forty-four years after his death, he died in 1384. Forty-four years later, the Bishop of Lincoln in England ordered his remains exhumed and burned and dumped into the River Swift. That was his thanks for having a desire to translate the Bible into common language. A horrible crime indeed, right? But perhaps the most well-known of the Reformers is the one that we consider the, the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Most people know him for nailing his 95 theses to his church door in Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517. And, and he had a whole list of grievances against the church. But all of that was based on his understanding of, of the Bible, of Scripture. And he had this little phrase, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That that should be the foundation for uh, the way the church operates, the way individuals operate. And he stuck to his guns. And eventually that led to what we now call the Reformation. Um, throughout history, there have been... People that have brought us back to the word. And that's necessary. Because I'll tell you what always happens is we always begin to drift. And there are so many other influences and so many other things that cause us to kind of drift away from where our center should be. And we need to come back to that. Uh, and, and that is that we are people of the word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But at the end of verse 42, and this kind of is connected. I'm going to connect this one to, to this. It says they also devoted themselves to prayer. 
And I want to be able to come back, and we will come back uh, in the near future and talk in more depth and more detail about prayer. But I do want to say for now that those two go hand in hand. Because what we're talking about here, when we read Scripture, we're saying, Lord, I want to hear your voice. I want you to speak to me. I want to be devoted to what you say. I want to listen. And prayer is the same thing. Prayer is us communicating with God. But, you know, prayer is also about listening to God. And so those two go hand in hand. We, we, we read to listen to what God says. We, we pray. We ask things of God. But we also say, I want to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in my life and lead me. Uh, the more time we spend seeking God through prayer, the more we will experience the power of God in our lives. And that's what we see happening in the early church. That's also what I believe was happening last week. It's not a coincidence to me that we saw God move in powerful ways last Sunday on Easter Sunday, but a big part of that, I am absolutely convinced, is the fact that we prayed around the clock Friday through Sunday leading up to those services and God answered and responded in very powerful ways. And I want you to know, by the way, you probably don't know this, um, I know some of you do, pass it on to me, to know that there are churches in our community that have been praying 24-7 around the clock from the beginning of the year. And we'll have an opportunity to jump into that. You'll hear more about that um, in the days to come. The first week of June will be our church's opportunity to say we're going to sign up and everybody take an hour and just pray around the clock for a week. But that's been happening all through 2023, and I'm excited to see what God is going to do as a result of that. When we pray, we see the power of God unleashed. We, we tie that to Scripture, to what, uh, what He has to say. Um, but this, here's the second thing about who we are as the bride of Christ. And that is that we are spirit-filled. We're spirit-filled. The passage says that they saw many wonders and signs uh, that were performed by the apostles. Now that's a real can of worms, isn't it? What in the world do you mean by that? Because there are so many different understandings of, of what does it mean to be spirit-filled. And in some contexts that has a certain connotation. And maybe even just when you hear that word, that might put your antenna up a little bit. And, and, and there might be certain things. Let me, just, let me tell you what it means. Being spirit-filled means being filled by the Holy Spirit. And literally. Let's just take that literally. Being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now the way we see that played out here is that the power of God is working through his people. It says that the apostles were performing these wonders and these signs and, and we read the rest of the book of Acts and we see, I mean, the first, the big one earlier in the book of, or in this uh, same chapter, in chapter 2, as we said, they were speaking in tongues, but they were speaking in languages they did not understand and preaching the gospel in languages they didn't know how to speak. And so people are hearing the message in their native language. They're coming to faith in Christ. But how else do we even begin to explain the things that we see happening apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit in the disciples themselves? I mean, just take Peter as an example. You remember Peter being the one that, that denied Jesus. He said, you'll deny me three times that you even know me. And he did. And he was afraid. And the disciples, even after the resurrection, they're gathering together and they're kind of staying you know, amongst themselves and the Holy Spirit comes and now all of a sudden they're publicly proclaiming the message. And these miraculous things are happening. People are being healed. And this, in chapter 3, there's someone who was lame from birth. It was given the ability to walk. Um, they, they were preaching boldly when they were arrested. It didn't faze them. They continued to stay bold in their faith. You just, I, there's no way to explain the things that, are, that the disciples are saying and doing apart from 
the empowering of the Holy Spirit. These are things they could not have done and said on their own, in their own strength. Now, as we talked about a few weeks ago, every person who comes to faith in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 talks about how the Spirit is given as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So you're, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You will never get more of the Holy Spirit than you got when you trusted in Christ. But here's the question. The question is, how much of us have we surrendered to the Holy Spirit? We'll never get more of the Spirit, but the Spirit needs to get more of us. We need to be more fully surrendered to Him. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There's a difference there. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which means submitting control, allowing the Holy Spirit to have control in our lives. We need to surrender to His leading. And the church is made up of those who should be Spirit-filled, filled with the Holy Spirit. The reason is because we need God's power to work through us. How many of you have figured out the things that we're supposed to do and the way that we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus, we can't do on our own. It is not possible in our own strength, but through the filling of the Holy Spirit, it it is possible. And that's where our power comes from. Again, it's interesting to look back at church history and see what happened when the, the power of the church came from a different source. There was an emperor uh, by the name of Constantine in the, um, the fourth century, and he was the first one to identify himself as a Christian. Up until that point, there was severe persecution that the church was facing. When Constantine uh, began to, to identify himself, first he issued this Edict of Milan, I think it was 313, And that said that basically you're free to worship however you choose. It wasn't just Christianity, but it ended persecution of Christians because everybody could worship as as they chose. But then after his death in 380, uh, there was the Edict of Thessalonica, which made the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church the official church of the empire. And now all of a sudden the church begins to be very powerful. And there is a power source for the church that is not the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is a political power. And a lot of corruption followed that. Uh, A big part of that, um, part of what Martin Luther and many of the others rebelled against was the selling of indulgences, which was a way of saying, if you give money, then that'll get your loved ones out of purgatory a lot sooner. Their little phrase was this, as soon as the penny jingles into the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. And you can just imagine the corruption that came along with that and uh, what that, and then there's this power. And any time the church begins to rely on a power other than the power of the Holy Spirit, we're in trouble. And it, it led down a very dark path. The book of Acts brings us back to a reminder of, of where our power should be. That the, that the Holy Spirit was filling believers and that was their source of power, and that should always be our source of power as well. That's what we rely on. We do not rely on some political power. We don't rely on certain prestige in our society. We don't rely on methodology. We don't rely on having the coolest tricks and all those kinds of things. That's not where our power is. Now, to be clear, I think as the church... We should be excellent in what we're doing. I think we should be creative and those kinds of things. There's a place for that. But that's not where our power is. Our power is in relying on the Holy Spirit to work through us and to do in us what only He can do. 
And I do want to point out the fact that being spirit-filled and Bible-focused should go hand in hand. A lot of times those are are kind of two dichotomies, right? You've got those over here that are all about being spirit-filled and maybe don't give enough emphasis on Scripture and letting the Bible dictate our, our practices and our understanding and our theology. And then you've got those on the other end that are all about the Bible, but it becomes very cold and very impersonal and there's no filling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what I see in Scripture is both of those work together. They're both necessary. We are our Bible focused, we're people of the word, and at the same time, we are filled with the Spirit's power. It's not either or, it's both and. We need both of those. And then here's the third thing. Verse 42, once again, we, we see an emphasis there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it says, and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And that is that we're relationship oriented. So we're Bible focused, we're Spirit filled, we're relationship oriented oriented you see this all throughout the passage you know that they're gathering together they're they're selling what they have they're donating the proceeds to one another to help each other to be able to meet needs verse 46 every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes ate together with glad and sincere hearts i mean they they are building deep relationships they're spending time together they're they're relationship oriented and you know that's how relationships develop, right? You have to spend time. You have to be with somebody in order to develop a relationship. I see this happen all the time uh, in our connect group setting. We have a group that meets in our home, and from time to time somebody that's, that's new will come into our group. And, and here's generally how it works. First time they come in, you can just tell they're feeling a little awkward, right? They're the new person. They don't know everybody. Next week get a little bit more comfortable, week after that a little bit more comfortable, a few weeks in, it's like they're just part of the group. It just takes some time, right? Some time being together to get more comfortable with one another, to develop those relationships. The society that we live in today does not lend itself toward us being together daily as it was back then. That's, that's really not a good practice today because people are so busy and we realize that. Calendars are crazy and you've got activities and school and sports and kids stuff and your own commitments. There's a lot of stuff happening that, that makes it not practical to be together necessarily every day. But can I just encourage you with this? In the midst of all of the busyness, prioritize setting aside time to, to, to be with other believers because that's where church happens. When we are together, and we, we build those relationships. It can be challenging but it's really a matter of setting our, our priorities. I can't overemphasize the importance of that, of being in some type of a small group setting. It's great to come to church. We need that. Uh, we need it in person, by the way. Um, that, that's important. I'm glad that we have opportunities to connect online and, and those kinds of things. That's a great supplement. It really is. But that doesn't replace being in person Developing relationships, getting to know people, even outside of just in this setting, to be in a small group where you can know and, and be known. That's where church begins to happen. And uh, as, as the little intro video said earlier, church is, church is not a building. It wasn't a building in Acts chapter 2. It's not a building now. I believe buildings are important in, in our culture especially. It gives us a place to be able to come together in large groups and small groups and have ministries to, to all different ages there, it's important, and there is a, a vital role for that. 
But the church is not a building. The church is you and me. Church is people. Church happens not just when we come together in a building. A church happens when, when you're at dance class with your daughter and you meet another parent and you invite that parent to, to come to church. You share your faith with that parent and that person comes. And this actually happened last Sunday uh, where someone came that was invited by a dance mom. God had been working in her life and she, she actually passed on. She was baptized here last Sunday. She passed on more of her story. And she said for the longest time, God's been stirring in her the need to be baptized. And she came and here was that opportunity and she took advantage of it. She was so desperate for it. She said, I, I, I was like trying to baptize myself in a swimming pool. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Like I desperately knew that this was a step that I needed to take. And then someone invites her and what happens? She has the opportunity to do what God wants her to do. That's church. Not a building, but the relationship. And I have to tell you that if you don't have those relationships that flow out of your involvement and connection with the church, you're missing something. Because that's where we develop those relationships. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ, and Jesus loves his bride. I've been to a lot of weddings throughout the years, both those that I've officiated as well as those that I've attended. I've seen some weird stuff happen in weddings, some things that surprised me. But let me tell you something I have never seen in the dozens and dozens of weddings that I've observed. I have never seen a time when the bride begins to walk down the aisle that every face in the room isn't smiling at her and eyes are filled with love and we look at the bride and we think wow what a special moment right and we rejoice and we we celebrate that we celebrate the bride everybody in that room loves the bride but nobody in that room loves the bride quite like the groom guys if you're married, you remember what it was like, don't you, when you saw your wife walking down that aisle toward you and she was more beautiful than you can imagine and you're just thinking, I can't believe she is about to become my wife. There's just an incredible love there. That's how Jesus views his church. We are the bride of Christ and Jesus deeply, deeply loves his bride. So with that in mind, let's just be all that, that he intends us to be. But let's also take joy in knowing that that's who we are. And we can be proud of that because Jesus loves his bride so deeply. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us. I just thank you that, that you call us into relationship with you. We know that, that we're, we're not clean. We're not worthy on our own. But you died for us to cleanse us. So thank you for that. Our desire is to live in a way that honors you and to glorify you in everything. In your name we pray. Amen.